Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 14 to 29. And the title of our message this morning is, All Things Are Possible to Those Who Believe. And that allows us to know, of course, that our subject this morning is the matter of faith. I'm sure we've all heard messages on the subject of faith. You really can't be a part of Christianity for any length of time without hearing about this matter of faith, because frankly, faith is the essence of Christianity. If you do not have faith, you do not have Christianity. If you do not have a belief in the person of Jesus Christ, and in his work, what he accomplished on the cross, you cannot be a Christian. And yet, it must be affirmed through faith. A belief, not just in the facts about Christ, but a belief, an entrustment in the person of Christ and what he did. You may ask for an illustration on faith to make it more palatable. And I ran across this in the middle of the night in a small Midwestern farming community. The two-story house of a young family caught fire. Quickly, everyone made their way through the smoke-filled house out into the front yard. The father looked up to the boy's room and saw his son crying at the window, rubbing his eyes. The father knew better than to re-enter the house to rescue his son, so he yelled, Son, jump! I'll catch you! And between sobs, the boy responded to the voice he knew so well, But I can't see you! And the father answered with great assurance, No, son, you can't, but I can see you. And the boy jumped and was safe in his father's arms. And the boy had faith in his father, but when he jumped, he made a commitment. That's faith. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's not a trip and fall without a net. Faith is an entrusting of yourself, a transferring of trust in yourself or something or someone else to the person of Christ. The acronym, Forsaking All, I Trust Him, is true. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. We want to talk about what the Bible says faith is. And while we're going to be doing it from Mark 9, I can't think of a better way to introduce our topic than to describe precisely the biblical definition of faith. You know very well Hebrews 11.6 the writer to Hebrews says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's our topic, faith. You and I have the opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness by exerting ever-increasing measures of faith. That's really what sanctification is all about. Giving your life over to the one who is able to save your soul. Not doing anything to attempt to save yourself, but entrusting your own life, your resources, your abilities, such as they are, which would never save in and of themselves, but entrusting your own soul to the only one who can save, Christ himself. And yet, when we talk about the subject of faith, it is often that the preacher would turn to a passage like Hebrews 11 or some other passage like that. It might not be as often for the preacher to turn to a passage like this in Mark 9, verses 14 to 29. But we have come to that, and we will. Why don't you follow along as I read? 
when they, that is Jesus and the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, came back to the nine disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he arose. When he had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now this long passage can be easily outlined, I think, into four sections. Easy to remember as well. The dispute comes to us in verses 14 to 18. That is the dispute between the nine disciples and the scribes. And then in verses 19 to 23, we see the declaration. The declaration of what Jesus says in the beginning of that section and at the end. And then thirdly, we see the dependence, the dependence of the Father upon Christ. That's shown to us in verses 24 to 27. And then lastly, the desperation. The desperation on the part of the disciples in verses 28 to 29. So it's very easy for us to know the dispute, the declaration, the dependence, and the desperation. Now what about this dispute as it unfolds for us in verses 14 to 18? Well, as you know, Mark, as he writes his gospel, is not always chronologically precise. Sometimes he takes stories and he moves them around, as is any writer's prerogative. Here, however, this event occurs right after the transfiguration, which we have covered in our last two times together. The disciples, Peter, James, and John, have just seen Jesus transfigured before them. And now they're coming back with Christ down the side of the mountain and are beginning to return to the rest of the disciples. And they see a large crowd around them, according to Mark, and apparently also some individual scribes. And the Bible says that they were arguing, disputing. And it says immediately, when the entire crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And you say, well, what's the significance of that? Why would they be amazed? Well, we're not told for sure. Some have suggested that maybe there was still a residual effect of the transfiguration on his hair or on his face or on his clothing. 
I tend to think not, because if Jesus were to have told the disciples that he didn't want them to speak a word to anyone, it probably also meant that he would not have been noticed in that way. We don't know exactly what this amazement is, but what we do know is this. Jesus and the disciples are returning from this glorious event, and Jesus is now back in the midst of a clamoring crowd. And as they come back, this father answers Jesus' question. Well, what are you discussing with them, that is, the scribes? Rather than the disciples answering for themselves, this father immediately blurts out this idea of his son. And this is a ghastly situation. Apparently, this boy, probably from early childhood, has suffered from what could be seen externally as maybe what we would define as epilepsy, some sort of medical malady that would allow him to convulse. But we know that, of course, because of the inspired Word of God, that there, in fact, beyond what could be appearing on the externals, is actually a demonic presence. And this father is both burdened and frustrated. He's frustrated because, apparently, he, knowing about Jesus' works, probably hearing all the way through Palestine about how Jesus has healed all kinds of evil, all kinds of demonic presences. And so he goes to Jesus himself, and yet Jesus is unavailable. And it appears to us in the text that the nine disciples are the ones who are there. And we know all the way back from Mark chapter 3 that Jesus had given the disciples the authority to cast out devils, and they had done so. And so in the absence of Christ, this beleaguered father comes to the very disciples themselves, no doubt casting himself upon their mercy, and asks if they can heal his son. And as they had attempted to do on occasions past, they intently attempt now to cast the devil out of the boy. And it doesn't happen. It's apparently a particularly difficult one. The father himself knows, according to verse 17, that the boy possessed a spirit, an evil spirit. And we know from Mark 3 and Mark 6 that the disciples had been having the ability to do such a thing, but something has gone wrong, something's gone awry. This particular account of this boy, this demoniac boy, sort of reminds me of Mark 5 and the Gadarene demoniac. Do you remember when we went through that? And the account there was of this young man who had apparently been so brutal and so demonized that the people of the city didn't know how to deal with him. And so they put chains around him and shackles on him, and they took him out to the place of the caves where they, they buried dead bodies, a place where no Jewish person wanted to go. And they threw this Gadarene man into this cave area. And you remember it said that no one wanted even to pass by that way because he would want to kill them. And he was so smitten with these devils inside his body that he would take these chains and he would rip them apart almost as a superhuman strength. And of course it is if those demons are inside of him. It says he would take some of these chains and he would, would rub them against his body and he would cause great scars and wounds. No one was able, the Bible says, to subdue him. And apparently the same is true of this young boy. No one is able to do anything with him. And without notice, the father no doubt would be walking along with the boy and all of a sudden the boy would be falling onto the ground, foaming at the mouth, stiffening out, all kinds of convulsions, and no one was able to do anything for him. What a hideous thing for a father to watch. What's more, what a hideous thing for someone themselves to experience. And yet, at the time when I'm sure the father was most eager to see his son delivered from such a battle, 
the disciples are unable to do anything at all. Now you say, what's their next move? Are they attempting to pray? Are they attempting to work hard? Are they attempting to uh, reevaluate what's going on, to try to do everything they can to minister to the boy? I mean, he's the one who has the greatest need among them, right? What does Jesus find them doing when he comes down from the mountain? Disputing with the scribes. You know what's going on here? They're being detoured from their ministry. He'd given them the ministry in Mark 3. He said, I give you authority to cast out demons. He'd even sent them on their first ministry assignment just a couple of chapters later. And they'd come back and given reports of how well things had gone. And now in Christ's absence, the expectation was that they were supposed to continue their ministry. And if someone comes to them with a particularly difficult problem, they need to be even more ready, not less. And apparently, they're unable to do anything. Which adds frustration on the part of the father. The son and his great need is not met. And the scribes, who should have been, as the religious leaders, even more occupied with the young boy than even the disciples themselves, they're certainly deterred from what they're supposed to do, and you end up having the disciples and the scribes disputing with one another. So when Jesus comes back and he says, what were you, the disciples, discussing with them, the scribes, the boy's father speaks up immediately. And he begins to relate to the Lord what the disciples could not do and what the scribes could not do. And I have to pause for a moment here and say, isn't this what we all seem to do at times? We run to Christ and we tell him what can't be done or at least what isn't being done instead of what could be done and what can be done with faith. I thought about this and I thought, you know, there have been times, I'm sure, where I've been distracted in my ministry to those who have the greatest need by disputation, by becoming sidetracked with some other lesser need or maybe not even a need at all. Maybe something satanically driven to divide my interests away from the greatest needs to those that may, in the final analysis, not be needs at all. We linger, don't we, in the dispute mode while those around us are grappling with the forces of wickedness. When the focus should be on how to help this epileptic boy, the religious leaders are disputing some aspects of the disciples' doings. We don't know what it is. We don't know if they're disputing about the law. We don't know if they're disputing about what the disciples were or were not able to do. We're not told. All we're told is that they were arguing with one another. And all the while, the boy is in desperate need of help. So Jesus, characteristically, puts the entire episode into its proper perspective. And we move from the dispute to the declaration. Look at verse 19. And he answered them and said, This is how you do it, men. This is the formula. You see, you did this first rather than the other. Scribes, let me tell you a few things about what's going on. Here's where you're wrong. No, he doesn't do any of that, does he? He goes right to the heart of the issue, both of the disciples themselves and the scribes and the entire crowd, and he says, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? What an indictment. I mean, here I left everything to follow Christ. I left the nets to be mended by someone else. I've attempted to be energized by the Messiah himself for ministry. 
and I now realize that I can't do it, at least in the way I know I ought to do, because nothing happened with this boy. What did I do wrong? What happened? And then I become sidetracked with the religious leaders who are already sidetracked themselves. And now I'm in a mess. And the rabbi, my teacher, my master, says to me, Oh, unbelieving one, how long shall I put up with you? I'd say that's an indictment, wouldn't you? And that's a tough blow. Jesus, after declaring such a thing, doesn't linger long. He goes right to the greatest need to be met. Bring the boy to me. He says the greatest thing is for the boy to be taken care of. Bring him to me. And when they brought to him the boy and he saw him, immediately because the demonic presence inside the boy saw or felt that they were in the presence of Christ, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsion and he fell on the ground. He began rolling around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from his childhood. And even if the demon could, whenever there was fire or water or both, he would try to push the boy from the inside out right into the fire or right into the water to destroy him, the Bible says. You know what that shows me, by the way? That demonic presence is real and it's powerful. Now, we may not have the kind of demonic presence today in an example like this because we're not Jesus or the apostles. But if it were manifest somewhere, and if it were manifest somewhere today like this, you and I would see this as very real and very powerful. Satan is real, friends. Don't for one minute assume that he isn't. He may work with a different modus operandi today. He may go through the allurements of the world. He may go through the, the world's system in such a way that is very cunning and crafty for you and I, and we may not see some sort of medical malady like this that could be traced back to actual demonic presence, but one thing is for sure. Satan is no less real, and he's no less powerful, and he is right here. And the Father knows that. He's lived in that experience. How would you react if you knew that your son, the son of your love, were being regularly tormented by whatever this spirit was inside of him, thrashing him, throwing him all over the place, throwing him near fire if he could, near water if he could, both if he could, to try to destroy him. What does Jesus declare? O oh, unbelieving generation. Now in essence, is that the most compassionate thing that one could say to a father in this condition? Might you assume he would say to a father like this, my compassion is upon you, bring the boy to me, what do you have to say to yourself, I love you and I want to help you? You see, what's occurring, however, is this father needs to understand something, and what he needs to understand is this, that faith activated in his heart can produce, if Jesus is willing, the miracle of the eradication of this demon from the boy's body. But Christ apparently is unwilling to do so unless the Father expresses the kind of trust, the kind of confidence that Jesus is the only one who can perform such a thing. He wants to trigger what he does based upon the Father's expression of faith. And what does the Father say? Here's what he says. Look at your Bible. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Is that the right answer? That's not the right answer. 
In fact, the right answer was the right answer that the leper gave in Mark 1.40. He didn't say, but if you can, he said what? If you are willing, you can. And that's the right way to pray. That's the right dependence. That's the right way to go. That's the right faith to express. You see, faith doesn't expect God to do everything. Faith knows that if God is willing, He can do anything. You see, that's why the health and wealth movement has it all wrong. They believe that if you express faith, God is expected to do anything. That's not what Christianity says. Christianity says, we know that if God is willing, He can do anything, but He must be willing. And it's not a question of ability. And the Father's heart, apparently, is the question of ability. If you can. And Jesus wants him to know, I certainly can. But it isn't a question of my ability. It's a question of your trust. And as much as he gives the negative at the first part in verse 19, O unbelieving generation, he gives the positive counterpart here. All things are possible to him who believes. Oh, what a bookend. I know by saying, oh, unbelieving generation, and certainly Jesus does as well, that's negative. To indict an entire crowd, an entire generation as unbelieving. But its positive counterpart is as sweet as the other is bitter. All things are possible to those who believe. Is that not sweet to your ears? What he's saying, of course, with the negative is this. Unbelief is so destructive, so destructive, that with unbelief, miracles will not be forthcoming. You remember in Mark's Gospel, earlier on, in Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, this incredible statement. Jesus could do no miracle there, that is in Nazareth, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled, he wondered, he was shocked at their unbelief. Did you hear that? He could do no miracle because of their unbelief. That's how stinging unbelief is. That's how shocking it is. But the positive counterpart, oh, how sweet it is. If I believe God, if I trust God, if I know that God is the only one to be trusted, I can trust Him, and if He is willing, all things are possible. All things. What a great text this is. All things, Jesus declares, is possible. It's all possible because... God can be trusted, and if He is willing, it will happen. Unbelief, destructive, debilitating, no miracles, heartache, sin. It reminds me, this unbelief of what Jesus says here, oh, unbelieving generation, reminds me of what God said through Moses concerning the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 32.20. I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. No believing. Boy, what a statement. I'll hide my face from them because they're perverse, because they don't believe. Or how about what God said through Isaiah in Isaiah 65 too? I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. And you know what that means, following your own thoughts? That's just another way of saying unbelief. I don't believe what God says. I believe what I believe. I believe what I think. I believe what my thoughts say. I believe that this is the origin of the world. I believe that this is right and wrong. I mean, you scarcely have to turn on the television these days and hear someone spouting something that is what they believe that is at total variance with what the Word of God says. And does not Paul, the Apostle himself, say in Philippians 2 that as followers of Christ, we're supposed to be 
as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You see, we are supposed to be the believing ones, the disciples, the followers of Christ. We're supposed to be the believing ones. And when we are the believing ones, we're like those lights in the world shining in a dark place, shining in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We're not supposed to be the unbelieving ones. You say, well, believers aren't unbelievers. Oh, we aren't unbelievers in the ultimate sense, but we do not always believe as we should, do we? Is there a battle in your heart? There is in mine about believing God with everything that He said and all that He's promised. Maybe I'm the only one, but I think all of us struggle. Oh, we may believe God for some things, and we may have a confidence in God about some things, and we may believe that at some levels He controls all the things that are happening in our world, but do we believe it in the matter of great confidence, great levels of security, that God has everything under control, and that no matter what happens in our world, God will and can be trusted for everything? Am I willing to line up my will with His will, even if I don't always see it? What about some of those in Hebrews 11, the great Hall of Faith chapter, who for which the Bible says never saw the promises of God? That is, they didn't see it in this life, but as soon as they went to glory, they saw it. Their faith was actualized in such a permanent and settled condition that they saw all the promises of God. This is, a, this is a passage that speaks to us of pretty simple contrasts. Unbelief and belief. I love the way William Lane paraphrases Jesus' answer to this man's remark. He says, if you can, please do this. And Lane says, Paraphrastically, as regards your remark about my ability to help your son, I tell you, everything depends upon your ability to believe, not on mine to act. In other words, this passage is not a passage which is speaking about the sovereignty of God. There are many other passages which teach that. This is a passage which teaches the responsibility of this man to believe in God and believe God that if God says, I am willing, God will do it. He'll bring it to pass. And he's calling on this man to believe. And what does this man say? I believe. Help my unbelief. Well, which is it? You say, well, he has the initial stages of belief, and that's no doubt true. And he is probably echoing the cry of many of our hearts, maybe even multiple times per day. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. What about us? We say we believe. We express all kinds of confidence in the power of God to do anything He wants in our lives or in the lives of others. But when the moment of truth comes, do we stand firm, like Paul says, against the fiery darts of the evil one? Do we pray for others and intercede for others because we know they need our intercession to stand firm, to have a strong faith, a great confidence in the power of God? Or do we sometimes cower in unbelief? Oh, it may not be outward where someone can see it, but what's in our hearts? Is it that we don't really believe? We doubt well, we know that this must be at least in theory true because James 1, verses 6 to 8 says this, He must ask, that is the person who says that he believes God, he must ask in faith, what's the next part of the phrase? Without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's unbelief. Unstable. Double-minded. What's the flip side? What's the positive? All things are possible to those who believe. So what's the example of that? Well, the best example, I thought, I thought, thought, thought. What kind of example could I come up with? And I went through all kinds of books on illustrations and quotations 
and I thought, I thought about my own life, I thought about the lives of other people that I respect who believe God incredibly, and I thought to myself, what are you doing? You're wasting all kinds of time. Go to the Bible. And I found one who I believe represents the pinnacle of faith, Abraham himself. The father of the faith. The one who believed God, who went out not knowing. And what does Hebrews 11 say about him? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. You know that Abraham in that great day was blessed by God with a son in his old age and his wife in her older age. And they were told specifically, verbally, by God Himself, I will raise up a descendant of this people through your son Isaac. It'll be like the sand of the seashore, like the stars of the sky. You can't even count them. And Abraham was riding high on the promises of God. And then God turned around and said, I want you to offer him up on Mount Moriah. I want you to kill him. What does Abraham do? What do you do? What do I do? Uh, Lord, are you sure? My friends, where God has put a period, don't put a question mark. If he said, do it, Abraham, you're to do it. And what did Abraham do? If he questioned in his mind, all we're told is that he went to that Mount Moriah and when Isaac was there and he was, when he was on that table to be sacrificed, Abraham's knife was in his hand and he was bringing it down because he believed God. You say, how much did he believe God? How firm was his faith? Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19 says that when he had received the promises, he offered up his only begotten son. And notice what it says. He, Abraham, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Oh, my. You have faith like that? Do I have faith like that? Do I believe that if my knife was in my hand and God had told me to do such a thing, even though the promises were ringing in my mind that all of the descendants of the world of faith would be blessed through this young boy, how can I do it? And yet that knife is in my hand and I bring it down until God stops me by supernatural providence and by providing the ram in the thicket to tell me that God Himself has provided another way. And even if none of that happened, it says about Abraham in the inspired text, he believed that even if Isaac had died right then and right there, that God would raise him from the dead. My friends, that's faith. That's trust. Could we do it? Is that our expression? Is that who we are? James 2 says, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Listen, if I say I have faith, and yet I'm not willing to trust God in the vicissitudes of life, in the great trials and tests of whatever God commands me to do, then I'm not really expressing faith. Maybe it's faith plus doubt. When Jesus says all things are possible to him who believes, he's saying that faith is a trust that God himself is if he's willing, can do whatever he wants. And what does this father say? Look at his dependence. Immediately the boy's father cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Jesus saw that this was at least a display of some faith. And he saw that the crowd was looking on what was going to happen. If the disciples failed, is their master going to fail? I bet that was a question on some of their minds. If the one who has discipled the disciples fails, then who can we trust? And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, one last time the demon attempts to hold sway in this young boy's life. It came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. 
But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he arose. You say, does this mean he died? I believe it does. Because it's the very same word, Anastasia, that is used for resurrection. Maybe this demon has the ability to actually kill someone. We believe he does because God told Satan in Job's life, you can do anything you want, just don't what? Kill him. And even if this demon had thrown him down in this convulsive state one last time and his breath was given up, Jesus brought it back to life again. He is God. He's the one who controls life. Even if Abraham had done that, God would have raised Isaac from the dead. And if this boy dies, Jesus is able to raise him from the dead. Well, we ask the question, what are the disciples doing all this time? What are they thinking? I mean, all of this commotion, all of the crowd, all that's going on, all of the declaration by Christ about the unbelieving generation and all things are possible to those who believe and the father and the boy and the demonic presence being exercised, where are the disciples and what are they doing? Verse 28. They have a desperate question. When he come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? What was going on? Why were we unable to do this? What's happening, Lord? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. You say, well, all this time you've been talking in this message about faith. You haven't said a thing about prayer. This, this whole issue, the, the point of this passage is that they weren't prayerful enough. No, no. It's that for sure, but it's more than that. Because in Matthew's account, this is what he says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. And he goes on to say, For truly I say to you, If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. You know what's going on here? Two things. The littleness of their faith and their lack of dependence on God. Both. Both are true. And both are normally true, if not always true, when our ministries become distracted, when we aren't able to follow through on the things for which we are called and commanded to do, it is usually and normally our littleness of faith and our lack of dependence upon God. Our prayerlessness and our faithlessness. If the disciples had a confidence, a trust in God, that the boy demoniac could be healed, and if they were completely dependent on the Lord for the infusion of His power, and if they believed by faith, trust, complete reliance that Jesus as the Master and God the Father as the knower of all things, the all-powerful one, that boy would have had that demon removed from him by those disciples. And here we have the principle. Prayerlessness and faithlessness. If we experience those, our ministry will not be what God wants it to be. How are you in the area of faith and dependence. You say like Paul, I'm going to stand firm in the faith so that I can stand against the fiery darts of the evil one. Can you say as we read in the scripture portion this morning that this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Are you overcoming the world? You say not all at once, neither am I. Little by little, step by step, ever increasing faith going from one level of glory to another. But it is never without faith. It is never without dependence. And as small and meager as it may seem to us at times, God knows our hearts. And when we express to Him a dependence and a faith that could, like a tiny mustard seed, move a mountain, it gives us the joy in knowing that God will do 
mighty things through us. You think God can do mighty things through this church? I believe He can. I believe He can if we all take the admonition of this text and say to ourselves, I'm going to do a spiritual inventory of my life. Where, I'm, where am I in the matter of faith and dependence? Is Jesus putting His finger on my life, oh, unbelieving person? Or, as paltry as my faith may be at times, am I increasing ever so committedly to trusting God? That's the faith that Jesus commands us to live, and that's the dependence that He wants us to experience. Oh, what joy and intimacy there is when we have that kind of faith and dependence. Let's pray together. Father, We don't depend on you as we ought. We don't express the kind of confidence, trust that you say to anyone who believes all things are possible. But Lord, in the midst of acknowledging those things, we know that the promise of your word stands Still, all things are possible. Ask, knock, seek. We'll receive. The door shall be opened. We can believe you. We do believe your promises. And we ask that you would give us the kind of dependence that speaks not of prayerlessness, but prayerfulness. And not of a little faith, but a great faith. If it's spoken of those in your word that they had a great faith, we know it's possible. And we ask that you would bring it to pass in our congregation with every individual. Father, I pray today for someone here, anyone, maybe many, who've never expressed that kind of faith, who now need to go to their knees, fall before you in humble dependence from that knee-bound position and ask you to receive them to yourself. If they do, then they're the very ones who give evidence that you are gifting them with that faith. I pray for anyone who would say, I'm a Christian. I know I am. And I have believed God in the past, but I have come to a place where my believing has turned to doubt. And my prayerfulness has turned to prayerlessness. I pray, Lord, that you would have challenged and convicted them by your Spirit to confess that and to seek change by your word and by your spirit and by your people. And I pray that as we continue to move through these wonderful texts, that you would challenge us as you challenge the disciples to know and understand rightly and to believe you to the uttermost. May we do so because it gives you great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.